Well, this morning we're continuing in John, uh, Gospel of John. We're in our fifth lesson. And so far we've been able to make our way through part of the epilogue, the introduction to John's Gospel, uh, basically the first uh, 18 verses of chapter 1. Um, and we've spent some time in the first five verses, and we, we've noticed his relationship not only to God, but to all things as the Creator God in verses 1 to 5. And as we make our way into this next section, verses 6 through 13, we want to be looking at his reason for coming into the world. His reason for coming into the world. It seems almost, as we'll read this in a moment, but it seems, if you read it in the entirety with the first five verses, it seems kind of an abrupt change of subject and, and information, but it's really not, as we'll, we'll see here, uh, verses 6 through 13, really just continue the flow of the words of John as he's inspired by the Holy Spirit. And so open your Bibles to John chapter 1, and we'll begin reading in verse 6. And I'd ask you to stand in honor of God's Word. And I'm just going to read this morning down through verse 13. We're not going to get through all this, but we'll be reading through verse 13. It says, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness or to testify about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Verse 10, he was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of the will of Uh, Not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Father, we ask you to bless these words to our hearts this morning as we look into uh, and apply them to our lives. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Last week, we've been looking at Jesus is the eternal God, and we talked about his preexistence. We talked about his position, his person, his purpose, his power as the creator He's not just the eternal word of God, but he is the creator of all that exists. And he holds all that exists together. And uh, one day he's going to let go. (laughs) And that's when everything's going to literally fall apart. Um, But we also see that we saw that Jesus is the author of life. In in him is life. Uh, Without him, there would be no life as we know it. And so we need to point all hearts, all lives to Christ. And as we move along, that was his relationship to God in all things. But now we're in verses 6 to 13, where really it talks about his reason for coming into the world. Why did Christ come into the world? And the first point here this morning, there's three of them we'll be going over the next couple of weeks. But the first one was it was prepared by John the Baptist. It was prepared by John the Baptist. And then secondly, it was preached to his own people in verses 9 to 11. And then it was presented to all who receive him in verses 12 through 13. Now, if you've done any uh, witnessing at all of any sharing of your faith, I was pleased to see Dan Berdoan and Michael out this past week. I think it was at the Great Mall or the week before, uh, sharing the the word, setting up a a booth and handing out tracts. And if you're interested in doing any ministry like that, talk to Michael and he can hook you up and and take you out and show you the ropes. It's It's a wonderful ministry. But you know, if you've done that at all, even if you've done it amongst your own family, 
you realize that all people do not respond the same way to the gospel. You always get a different response. And I just thought, in way of introducing this next section, I want to spend a little time talking about the, the different people that we see in Scripture and how they respond to Christ in several different ways. Um, when people know about the sinless life of Christ, when people understand the words of Christ, uh, when they're presented with the claims of Christ, it always seems to stop people dead in their tracks, and they're faced with a decision. They're faced with, what do I do with this information? It happened in Jesus' time, and it happens even today as we share the gospel as representatives of Christ here in this lost and dying world. And so the first thing there in your, your bulletin, the, the way people react to Jesus Christ in different ways, the first one, some people are very superficial in their reaction to Christ. It's, it's a very superficial uh, draw, you could say. Later in the Gospel of John, in chapter 7, verse 12, it says that some were saying of Jesus, well, he's a good man. <laughs> he's just a good man, that guy. He's out helping people look at him. And going a step beyond that, others acknowledged that he was even a great religious leader. In Matthew 21, 11, uh, 21, 46, Luke 7, 16. Some of them said, oh, he must be a prophet. Some of them said, maybe he's, he's John the Baptist reincarnate, or Elijah, or Jeremiah, or maybe he's one of the other prophets. That was a response to Christ, the God-man. And at one point, you remember in, the Gal in Galilee there, when he created a meal for everybody, fed everybody uh, free, you know, 5,000-some people with women and children more than that, um, out of nothing, right? A couple fish and loaves. He fed all these people. And basically, what did they do? If you read that text in John chapter 6, we'll get there eventually. <clears throat> but it says they wanted to really uh, make him be their king. <laughs> they were trying to force Jesus to be their king. Not in a spiritual sense, mind you. They wanted Jesus, hey, if he can provide free lunch for us, he could probably do dinner too and breakfast. We got to keep this guy around. You know, it's, it's free stuff. This is pretty impressive. And so he thought, they thought, hey, if we can make him our king, then, then he's going to go to Rome or go to Jerusalem and throw off the yoke of these, the slavery to Rome, and he's going to be our leader. And they thought, hey, you know what? Um, this, is, this is good for everybody. But that's very shallow. That's not a reason. You don't follow Jesus for free food. And yet, you look at the church today, and you wonder how many people actually come to Christ <laughs> with the proper motivation. A lot of people seem to entertain Jesus and entertain the gospel when what? When everything is falling apart in their own life. And they're not looking for a savior. They're looking for somebody to fix it. And I'm not saying God doesn't work through that because God allows those trials and those tribulations in our lives. And sometimes God can use those circumstances to draw us to Christ. But it doesn't mean that he's going to fix the problem. I'm sure we could go around the room and many of you could tell, tell me of a situation in your life that, that came and it was a tribulation, a trial, and it drew you 
closer to God or closer to Christ or maybe to Christ initially. The problem didn't go away. The problem was as big as it was before. But what your perspective about the problem changed because Christ changed your heart. See, that's a big difference. And we have too many people coming to Jesus today for the wrong reasons, for just felt needs. Hey, Jesus is going to make me happy. He's going to fix my job. He's going to fix my finances. He's going to fix my kids. He's going to fix my marriage or my relationship. And we're going to find out that that's, not a, that's, not, that's very superficial. Um, and to show you how superficial the, the, the people that ran into Jesus were while he was here on earth. Remember when he came into Jerusalem on, we believe, I believe, Palm Monday, not Sunday. It happened on a Monday, I believe. And when he marched into Jerusalem, what did they do? Oh, they laid down palm branches. Oh, Hosanna. Hosanna to the high. You know, praise be to you. And, and they bowed down and they, they laid down their, their garments and, and they were just worshiping Christ for all the wrong reasons. <laughs> but they were worshiping Christ. And you see, a few days later, this same crowd, what were they shouting? Away with him. Away with him. Crucify him. We want the criminal in, in place. Don't turn Jesus free. Turn the criminal free. Crucify him. See, that's what kind of a, a superficial, very fickle following of Christ, a response to Jesus gets you. It gets you nothing. Nothing. So some were superficially drawn to Christ while he was here. Secondly, some were strongly attracted to Jesus. Maybe you know some people who are very strongly attracted to Jesus, but in the end, what are they? They're unwilling to commit themselves to him. They're unwilling to cross that line. They're unwilling to sign on the line, as you say, to make the commitment. Uh, John 12, verse 42 says this, Many, even of the rulers, the religious leaders, they believed in him. They believed in him. It says, but because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him. Why? For fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. Were they true followers of Christ? No. A true follower of Christ has nothing between him and his Savior. There's no idol. There's no God between you and Christ if you're a true follower of Christ. I think a, a classic example of those who were presented with the truth of Christ and were even attracted to Christ, if you turn over to Mark, the Gospel of Mark chapter 10, and this is just to get you to see the different responses that people have to the Savior. And if you look at verse 17, we see a classic example here of someone who shrank back from a full commitment to Christ. It says in verse 17 of Mark 10, and as he, speaking of Jesus, as Jesus was setting out on his journey, look at what happens. A man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, here's what he said, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Have you ever had anybody do that to you? <laughs> I never have. I've been in ministry a long time. I've never had somebody run up to me and say, oh, good fellow, tell me of Christ. I've never had that happen. If it did happen, I, I would be pretty excited, wouldn't you? Wow, this is pretty cool. God's just drawing the fish in, you know? That would be great. 
That's a pretty important question this individual asked Christ. He says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? If you're listening today and you don't know the answer to that question, I pray that you would get busy investigating the answer. Because that's a very, very important question. Why is it important? Because if you don't answer that question on this side of glory, on this side of death, you can't answer it on the other side. You have one, one opportunity. As long as you're living, you can answer that question in the appropriate way. And guess what? You will be assured of heaven for all of eternity. But if you go out of this place today, and God forbid you get hit by a bus, you die of a heart attack, whatever happens, and you're in the glory, and then you're saying, oh yeah, that guy said that there's something I should do to inherit eternity. Too late. <laughs> Too late. Your eternity is secured in a Christless eternity. And so it's a very important question. <clears throat> and look at how Jesus answers him. <clears throat> look at what he says here in verse 18. He says, and, and <clears throat> this text says, And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? <laughs> no one is good except God alone. And you say, Wow. That seems pretty harsh, Jesus. I mean, here's this guy. He's coming to you for salvation. And, he, he, you know, you kind of double down on what he's saying. Good teacher. He doesn't call you a false teacher. He doesn't call you a bad teacher. <clears throat> he compliments you. He calls you a good teacher. I mean, it doesn't seem very seeker-friendly, Jesus, to answer the man, why do you call me good? What does Jesus do in this situation? He, he really takes a, a cup of very cold water and dumps it over this man's head. <laughs> that's really what he's doing. I mean, he doesn't do it physically, but I mean, spiritually, that's kind of what he does. He douses him with a cup of cold water. And it wasn't intended to dampen this young man's enthusiasm. It says that this man ran up and knelt before him. So there was some enthusiasm on his part. It wasn't like, oh, there's Jesus. Yeah, maybe I'll ask him something later. I got a question. I'd like to ask that guy. No. He probably sought Jesus out. And when he figured out where he was, he ran to him. And then he made his presence known by bowing down and kneeling before him. And then he asked his question. And Jesus, rather than saying, hey, here, let me tell you. He questions his question. Do you ever do that with anybody? Or do you ever have anybody do that with you? You ask somebody a question and they say, well, why are you asking that question? They don't answer your question, but they pose another question back to you. And what are they doing when they do that? Inevitably, they're questioning their motive, right? They're questioning your motive. If, if I asked you, so, um, I, I remember one time somebody left their Bible here in, in, in the pew. In the, in the seat, and about Tuesday, I saw it, I figured out whose it was, and I thought, hmm, I wonder how long it's going to stay here before I get a call. So Thursday, still not having a call, I thought, well, I'll, I'll play with this person a little bit. And I remember texting him, saying, hey, you missing anything? Oh, no, not at all. <laughs> Finally, I sent him a picture. Oh, 
you know, but they're probably thinking, why are you asking me this question, right? They're probably thinking, what's your motivation? Why, why are you asking me if I'm missing anything? Well, here Jesus wanted to show this man where his motivation was. He wanted to awaken him to the spiritual reality of his situation. Um, calling a, a teacher or anyone else for that matter good was, was virtually without parallel in the Jewish society of that day. Because good, agathos, means good in essence or by nature. And that was extravagant language that this man used in light of the fact that this man did not know that Jesus was God. He didn't know that. And so he was using language that was very extravagant. And, and, and what Jesus is saying by saying, why do you call me good? He's saying, what are you saying? Don't you know that calling me good is really calling me God? Because we all know that none of us are good. And so what's Jesus doing? He's attacking this man's shallow use of the word to get him to think about what he was saying. With the purpose of bringing him to an understanding that Jesus truly is God. He was simply showing this man he needed to evaluate his motivation for running up to Jesus. Why do you want to talk to me? Why why are you calling me good? And look at what Jesus says here in in verse uh, 19. He says, you know the commandments... speaking to him within really the, the framework of his own legalistic mind, Jesus recited some of the commandments. Specifically, he recited uh, the second five of the Ten Commandments, which usually, generally, deal with dealing with other people, how you treat other people. So the, the commandments he recited is, you know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not lie, do not bear false witness, he says, do not defraud, and also honor your father and your mother. So the Lord here is reminding this young man um, the point that if salvation comes through keeping the law, and this man had kept the law as he professes, and that's basically what he says, Why did he not know that he obtained eternal life? Why was he not satisfied? See, the truth is really pointing out what Jesus is trying to do. He's trying to show this man his own self-deception and how shallow his approach to Christ really was. And so he says, you know, you know, you know the commandments. He recites them. And basically, are you keeping the commandments? Is, you know. And this was proper. Um, you know, the rabbi seriously spoke of people who kept the law from A to Z. All right? They, that was just part of their religion. You remember the Apostle Paul even said in Philippians 3, 6, as for me, as far as, as my uh, legalistic righteousness, what does he say? I'm faultless as a Pharisee. So there was that mindset going around. And this is how he regarded himself before he faced really the full implication of what God's law meant. Um, And look at what he says in verse 20. 
Now, Jesus here is just introducing this message to him. He talks the Gospels. He recites the Gospels. And then in verse 20, the man says to him, Teacher, I have kept all these since my youth. (laughs) And, you know, quite honestly, I mean, this, this really shows how superficial this guy was. Um, he, he, I, I've kept all these since I was a boy. Since I had my bar mitzvah, I've kept all these rules, Jesus. It seems pretty arrogant to me. And I would even, as I kind of studied this text this past week, you know, I didn't find somebody else saying this, but I just thought, you know what, it almost seems like this man entered interrupted Jesus mid-sentence. Um, he asked Jesus, how do I get eternal life? And Jesus says, well, you know the commandments. He recites the commandments, right? And then what happens? This man pipes up, oh, I've done all that. Yeah, been there, done that, exactly. That's kind of what he said. I don't think Jesus was done. I don't think Jesus was done talking. And I was kind of treating this individual this past week, this man in the scriptures here, this young ruler, rather harshly in my mind. I thought, how arrogant you are. You interrupt, you disturb what Jesus is trying to say to you. You ask him a question, you won't even let him answer. You won't even let him complete his thought. The reason I say this is because... I don't think Jesus was saying, if you just keep the law, you'll be saved. That couldn't have been what Jesus was saying. That goes against everything in Scripture. Because we are saved not through works, Ephesians tells us. It's grace through faith we're saved, not of works, lest we what? Lest we boast. What was this young man doing? He was boasting. Jesus says, hey, you know... You've heard of the, the commandments. But this guy interrupts him and says, oh, I've done all that. Tell me something I don't know. <clears throat> I think what, what really um, amazes me in this text is the response of Jesus to this arrogant guy. Look at his response in verse 21. It says, and Jesus looking at him, it says, loved him. Looking at him, he loved him. This wasn't a snarky look by Jesus. This wasn't Jesus saying, how dare you interrupt me. This wasn't a judgmental look by Jesus. A look that said, you know, okay, Mr. Smarty Pants, you're not even going to let me finish my answer. You, you finish the answer for yourself. That's not what Jesus was doing here. He wasn't telling this man, oh, it looks like you got it all figured out, pal. That's not what he was doing. It, no, it says Jesus looked at him and it says loved him. This look was a look that was full. It was filled with love. It was filled with compassion. It was filled with sympathy and empathy. It was a look of patience. It was a look of benevolence and pity. Even a look filled with grace and mercy, of kindness and kind-heartedness. 
And remember what Jesus is doing. He's here on, on earth with a body on, God in a bod, to give us a picture of the heart of God. That's why he's here, and to die for our sins. Never think that God does not care. Never think that somehow that God is some force off in in space somewhere removed from any personal involvement in our lives. No, God, the scripture says, is a very personal God. God is a God who loves us, who cares for us as his own creation. He created us. He desires you to understand your faults and your, your failures and your sins. And that they can be forgiven through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the heart of God. That's the heart of Christ. Jesus paid the price for your sins to restore you, to reconcile you back to your heavenly father, your creator. And Jesus responded with this memorable stroke of mercy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. And then it says this, one thing you lack. I'm going to answer your question now, even though you interrupted me. (laughs) I'm going to answer the question. One thing you lack. He said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then, conditional, come follow me. This is what Christ answers him with. How do, I, how do I get saved? How do I receive eternal life, Jesus? Well, let me tell you, you've heard about the commandments. Oh, I've done all that. <laughs> okay. Jesus is patient with them. He doesn't even question whether he did or not. We all know he didn't. He was making really a false claim. He was lying to Christ. Maybe he thought he did. But there's nobody perfect. The law wasn't given for us to keep. Because we can't. The law was given because we can't keep it. And what does the law do? It shows us our inability to save ourselves. And then all of a sudden when we realize, you know what? I could never keep God's law. What am I going to do now? I'm imperfect. I'm sinless. How do I fix this? And God says, you can. You can't fix it. But guess what? I already did. I sent my son to die in your place for your sins. And even though you can't keep the law, you don't have to. You put your faith, your trust in Christ, and I will forgive you based on the forgiveness that that Christ grants us through Calvary, on his willingness to die in our place. It seems harsh. This young man is faced with giving up everything. But I think they weren't meant to be harsh. I think Jesus is simply speaking truth. And he's doing it, I think, in a very tender way. And I think Jesus meant every syllable of what he said in this context. See, this was the only way for this rich young man to understand his need of Christ. To give up everything. Not just give it up, but give it to the poor. He says, and you will have treasure in heaven, and then come, what? Follow me. Then you can. And it tells us, verse 22, the man's outcome, 
It says, disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful. Why? Because he had great possessions. What was Christ's motivation? He pointed out, hey, why are you coming to me? Why are you running up to me, calling me good teacher, bowing down before me, and you want to know eternal life? What, what's, what's your motivation? Why do you want this so bad? And Jesus pointed out simply the truth of the matter. He really didn't want it that bad. <laughs> he didn't want it bad enough, apparently, because he laughed. Doesn't say he went away rejoicing. He he went away uh, disheartened. He went away sorrowful because he couldn't put his possessions under and subject to Christ. He couldn't submit fully to the Savior. See, some are superficially drawn to Jesus. Some who are strongly attracted to Jesus, but in the end, they're really unwilling to commit everything they have him. That's the only way you'll be saved. You can't have one foot in, one foot out. That Jesus doesn't work that way. Well, thirdly, you have a third group here that, that some were openly hostile to Jesus. They were openly hostile to Jesus. Over in John chapter 7, verse 12, it says uh, they were claiming, these people were claiming, oh, this guy, Jesus, he leads people astray. They were saying he's a heretic, he's false. In his trials before Pilate, the Jewish authorities in Luke 23, 2, it says they began to accuse Jesus, saying we found this man misleading our nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. So they were trying to tattletale on Jesus. Even after his death, these accusations continued in Matthew 27, 62 to 63. It says, now on the next day, the day after the preparation, the the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together with Pilate and said, sir, we remember that when he was still alive, that deceiver said, they're speaking of Christ. After three days, I will rise again. And others who openly defied Christ, thought he was literally a a madman. They thought he had a demon, that he was possessed, he was deranged. John chapter 10, verse 20 says, many of them were saying he has a demon and he's insane. Why do you listen to him? The Jewish leaders even asked sarcastically in John 8, uh, 48 and 52, he says, Do we not say rightly that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Now we know that you have a demon, they said. After seeing his miracles, after seeing everything that Christ has done, even his own family, beloved, didn't get it. We see in Mark 3.21, even his own family at one point, it says, went out to take custody of him, for they were saying, He has lost his mind. (laughs) Our brother Jesus is just plain nuts. We need to to get him and and put him in the house, lock him up. He's given our family a bad name. They couldn't deny his supernatural power, um, but they weren't um, willing to attribute it to God. 
Instead, they said, well, it must not be God who's doing these miracles. It has to be Satan. And he's doing them through this man who's claiming to be the Messiah. And they spread that lie all over Israel. And the common thing that links these three inadequate responses to Christ really is, is, is one word. It's unbelief. It's unbelief. That's the sin that ultimately damns all those who reject Jesus Christ. Some people say, well, can you, can you commit the, the unforgivable sin today? Well, in the sense of the unforgivable sin that is referred to in the Gospels, I would say, no, you can't commit that because Jesus isn't here physically walking around healing people and doing miraculous signs. And so you can't physically point to Jesus here on earth and go, you know what, he's doing it by the work of Satan. And they say that's blasphemy of the Holy Spirit because he was doing it through the power of the Spirit. I don't believe you can commit that sin, but I think you can commit the sin of unbelief. And if you die with an unbelieving heart, guess what? There's no hope for you. There's no hope for you. John 3.18 says, He who believes in him is not judged. How many of us like to be judged by someone? We don't like that, let alone being judged by God. Well, it says if you believe in Christ, you're not going to be judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And then Jesus repeatedly rebukes those who refuse to believe in him. So these false responses to Christ, these, these, these failed reactions, Christ really uh, rebukes them. In John 5, 38, he says, You do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe him whom he sent. Or in verse 50, 43 of John 5, I have come in my Father's name, this is Jesus speaking, and you do not receive me. If, any, if another comes in his own name, you will receive him, but you're not going to receive me. I'm from God. Or in John 6, 36, he says, But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. In John 8, 45, but because I speak the truth, you do not believe me. In John 10, 25, he says, I told you, and you who do not believe, that the works I do in my Father's name, these testify of me. But you do not believe, because you are not my sheep. Jesus points it out very clearly. See, that's, that's the fruit that's reaped by someone who doesn't believe in Christ, who doesn't believe in his claim that he is God, that he is the Savior. They will be cast into a Christless eternity under the judging, wrathful hand of God. The good news is, in contrast to the unbelief of the lost, is really the contrast of the, the Father who... who whom he, he gave to Jesus, those who responded by fully believing his claims and his teaching. The people who believe in Christ, the people who follow Christ, they will receive all the blessings of salvation. They will receive all the blessings of eternal life, of forgiveness of sin. They will even be adopted as children of God, it says. In John chapter 3, verses 15 to 17, John writes, whoever believes in him will have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever, what, believes in him, 
shall not perish, but have what? Eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Do you ever share the gospel with somebody? Why are you judging me? (laughs) That's the reaction you get sometimes. It's like, I'm not judging you. I'm just sharing the, the gospel truth with you. But they hear it as judgment. Why? Because they don't want to believe. In, in John 3.36, he says, He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey, obey the Son, will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Or John 5, 24, truly, truly, I say to you, when Jesus says truly, truly, he's saying, hey, listen up. I got something important I'm going to say to you. He who hears my word, is that enough? No. And believes him who sent me has eternal life. And does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. Or in John 6, 40, another verse And this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. And I myself will raise him up on the last day, Christ says. Verse 47 of John 6, truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. You can get into the book of Acts, Acts chapter 10, verse 43. Of him all the prophets bear witness that through his name everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sin. Or Paul in, in Romans 1.16 when he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who what? Believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. John reiterates this fact in 1 John chapter 5, his letter, verse 1, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ, is born of God, and whoever loves the Father loves the child born of him. The Gospels over and over and over record the beliefs of people. They record the belief of Peter, of Nathaniel, of the disciples, of the Samaritan woman, of others in the village, a blind man whom Jesus healed, the woman who visited the tombs, the former skeptic Thomas, Acts chapter 1 verse 14 reports that our our Lord's brothers had come to believe after the resurrection. The ones that were calling him nuts before the resurrection said, wow, he really was who he said he was. This is pretty incredible. And so now, after establishing the deity of Christ, John now turns to only two possible responses to that reality, either unbelief, you don't believe his claims, or you believe them. And I think it's, it's very, very important. You're not just believing in the title. You're not, you know, there's a lot of people in Mexico named Jesus, Jesus, right? You can believe in him all day long. They're not going to save you, right? No, you're, you're believing that he is who he said he was, what the scriptures testify of him. It's referring to his character, his attributes. See, and a lot of people are not saved who say they believe in Jesus because they aren't believing in the character and the person, in essence, of of being Christ. They don't understand who he really is. They just want somebody to come into their life and straighten out the mess they've made. 
to help them with their, their drugs or their alcohol or their failed marriage or their failed finances or their messed up kids. See, if you're going to come to Christ, don't come to Christ as your crutch. That's not necessarily going to save you. Or if I come to Jesus, then he'll fix all my problems. No, he may not. As a matter of fact, the Bible seems to indicate that you may have some more problems than you did before you were saved. And many of you can testify of that, right? See, you come to Christ because you know he's the eternal God and that he made you and that he provided a way, a sacrifice for you to have the forgiveness of your sins. And you come to him because you know there's nowhere else to go. He's your only hope. He's your only chance. He's the only one who can save you from your sins and give you everlasting life. It's a very, very important issue. So as we look at the reason for his coming into the world in verses 6 to 13, we see a couple things. And the first thing there quickly is that it was prepared by John the Baptist. Look at what it says in verse 6. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. (laughs) Um, Like I said, this seems kind of an abrupt change. You know, he just got done talking about in him was the life and the light of man. And then it says, oh, there's a man sent by God. His name was John. It's very important when you think of this man... It actually says literally there appeared a man, indicating the shift from what? He's talking about Christ in verses 1 to 5. He's talking about the word becoming flesh. He's talking about deity incarnate, right? And then he says, well, let me tell you about somebody else. There was this guy. There was this man. It's a shift from the heavenly word to what? The earthly herald. The guy who's sharing the message of Christ. After describing who the word was, that he was Jesus and that he was God, the apostle John turns to the one who announced that the word was God. The herald of Christ. And says his name was John. We know him as what? It's not the writer of the gospel. Some people say, oh, he's talking about himself. No. As a matter of fact, John never talks, mentions his name, ever. In this gospel, he doesn't mention it once. So whenever you see the word John, it's always referring to John the Baptist, usually. There are some verses um, later on in the gospel, a couple times when he, he refers to Peter's father. His name was John. Other than that, we don't see him mention his own name at all. He doesn't mention it. So this is not talking about the, the, the apostle John. It's talking about John the Baptist, John, the Apostle John, chose to call himself the what? The disciple whom Jesus loved. He didn't mention his own name. He just said, yeah, I'm the the disciple who Jesus loved. Now, notice there it says that he was sent from God. And this is confirming John the Baptist's role in in heralding Christ's message. Um, John the Baptist, first of all, he had a divine commission because it was spoken of in the Old Testament prophecies regarding the Messiah's forerunner. God in the Old Testament, in in various, Isaiah 43 and in different places, it tells us that, you know what, when the Messiah is going to come, he's going to send somebody before him to kind of announce his coming. Well, John the Baptist is the announcer. He's the heralder of Christ. 
He's the guy that's out in front of Christ saying, Hear ye, hear ye, the Messiah is here, and this is him. And the Old Testament closes with Malachi's prophecy, that Italian prophet, Malachi, Malachi's prophecy about Elijah. This, this Elijah-like prophet to come before the day of the Lord. This is kind of whom he's speaking of. It says, which the angel of the Lord told Zacharias referred to John. So there's going to be this Elijah-like character, this prophet that's going to show up before the Messiah is here. And, and, and this is foretold in the Old Testament. He's talking of the, John the Baptist. Secondly, John the Baptist was uniquely sent from God because, you think about this, his conception and his birth were miraculous. They were like Christ in a way. They were miraculous. His parents were old. He had never had, they had never had children. That's, that's pretty amazing. And all of a sudden they're having a child because God made this happen. It was a miracle from the Lord. Thirdly, the angel of the Lord came from heaven to tell Zacharias that he and Elizabeth would have a son and he would be the Messiah's herald. That's in Luke 1, 8 to 17. You can read that on your own. But God tells them, hey, you're, you're going to have a, a boy at your old age, and you know what? He's going to be um, the herald, the, the presenter of the Messiah. Fourth, it says the Holy Spirit filled Zacharias to prophesy concerning John. So God is involved in every way with John the Baptist's birth and his ministry. Fifthly, the Baptist, John the Baptist, was sent from the Lord at a divinely appointed time to begin his public ministry. It tells us in Luke chapter 1, verse 80, and the child grew and became strong in spirit, speaking of John the Baptist, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. <clears throat> and it seems to indicate that this public appearance was appointed by God. There was a day when he was revealed as the forerunner. <clears throat> John was the, the, the first true prophet in the New Testament to appear in Israel in over 400 years. There was 400 years of silence between Malachi and Matthew. And all of a sudden, <clears throat> here comes this bold, confrontive preacher. You can think of him really as one of the last Old Testament prophets. He really was. <clears throat> In Matthew, <clears throat> Matthew chapter 11, verse 11, it, it, it tells what Jesus said of John the Baptist. Here's what it says. Truly I say to you, among those born <clears throat> of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Wow. This is Jesus Christ saying this of another man. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. That's <laughs> pretty amazing. And you ask, well, why is he so great? Why, what's so great about John the Baptist? Was he really smart? No, it doesn't seem that. He may have been. We don't know. Was he more spiritual than everybody else? No. What, did he have more influence in anybody? No. It, it really explains he's the greatest man who ever lived up until this time because no one had ever had a greater responsibility 
No one had a greater privileged duty than John the Baptist. Well, what was his duty? He was here to introduce the Messiah to the world. That was his purpose. And that made him greater in terms of responsibility and privilege than anyone who had ever lived. Think of that. He was bold. He was forthright. And yet he was humble. He was resolute. And he was very faithful to the purpose and the calling on his life of preaching the truth. As a matter of fact, he was so faithful, eventually it cost him his head. You can read about that in Matthew 14. He was beheaded. Mark 1.5 describes his enormous impact, the impact of John the Baptist. It reported, it said this, and it says, all the country of Judea was going out to him and all the people of Jerusalem, and they were being baptized by him, by John the Baptist in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. What was he doing? He was preparing the hearts of the people for the Messiah. He was not the Messiah, but he was preparing their hearts. And he fearlessly confronted sin. He was kind of an odd duck. He ate some weird things. He dressed weird. But you know what? He did what God called him to do. He confronted sin and he called for repentance. In Matthew 3, 1 it says, Now in in those days John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The Messiah is here. John even rebuked Herod, you remember that story, in Mark chapter 6, on account of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip, because he had married her, and John said, that's not right. John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. That's really kind of where, what he got in trouble for. But it says that even this, this godless king that he ticked off so bad, he acknowledged in Mark 6.20 that John the Baptist was a righteous and holy man, his words, and when he heard him, he was very perplexed, and he used to enjoy listening to him. So John the Baptist was one who came to prepare, to prepare the way of the Lord. And he was in some people's eyes, unfortunately, was exalted beyond what they should have exalted him. They looked to John the Baptist as this, you know, prophet of God. And really, um, Luke 3.16 says that he had to continually say to the people who were following him, it says in Luke 3.16, one is coming who is mightier than I. And I am not fit to untie his sandals. So John was constantly deflecting all the worship that people were giving him, all the cult following around him. And some were unfortunately devoted to John instead of the Messiah. Acts 19 records that, hey, John, that Paul had to address this because they were saying, oh, we were already baptized by John. We don't need to be baptized as believers. What are you talking about? And so they, they created kind of a cult following around Christ. But this didn't come from John. This came from the people. And that happens even today, unfortunately, doesn't it? There's cult followings of, of people who are involved in ministry. 
And, you know, it's, I mean, there's some wonderful men who have, have given their lives to serve the gospel, to, to teach the word, and they've done wonderfully. And it's not coming from those individuals who are in that role, but it comes from the people who are following them. And it's almost like, well, they could never do anything wrong. Whatever they say is always right. No, don't ever get to that point. You always have to keep a, a critical eye open. It doesn't matter if it's Spurgeon saying it or John MacArthur or, or uh, Stanley or whoever. If it's not agreeing with the word, then it's not right. <laughs> we can't negate that. Well, what's the contrast between John the Baptist and Jesus? And I put a little diagram there, I think, on, on, your, on the first page there. Christ was from all eternity, but John came, okay, because he's human. Christ never had a beginning. He never had an end. Christ is the word, all right? John is a mere man. Christ is himself God. John is commissioned by God. Christ is the real light. John came to testify concerning the real light. And think of it this way. Christ is the object of trust, and John is the agent through whom testimony that, that the men can come to trust in the real light. He's the agent. He's the messenger. And John's, John's mission was not to lift himself up, not to exalt himself, but to what? To witness or to testify about the light. It says in verse 7, he came as a witness to bear witness or testify about the light that all might believe through him. This was his purpose. And in verse 8, it says it very plainly. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. He's the first of eight witnesses that appear in John's gospel. And I put a little chart there down at the bottom of the next uh, this flip side. There's John the Baptist, the father, Jesus' words, Jesus' works, Old Testament scripture, some of the, the men who, who met Christ, the disciples, and the Holy Spirit. All those testified about whom Christ was. That word testify or witness, marturia in the original language, it's, it's, it means that you're testifying of something as related to fact, not opinion. This isn't John the Baptist giving his opinion about Christ. No, he is stating facts about Christ. He is testifying to the truth of who he is. That term, it, it appears by the Apostle John 77 times out of the 113 times in, in uh, uh, gospel, the Gospel uh, writings in the, in the New Testament. But 30, 77 times it appears in John's Gospel or the Epistles or the Revelation. And he's called the Baptist because that's what he did. He was sent by God to baptize repentant sinners in preparation for the Messiah's coming. And so the purpose was that all might believe through him. It does refer in John 5.35, I thought this was interesting. It refers to John the Baptist as a light, but it's a different word. There's two words for the word light. Christ is always referred to with the Greek word phos, P-H-O-S, phos. That's where we get, what, phosphorus, right? And, and so it's always referring to Christ when it uses that word, and it refers to the essence of light. But in 5.35, John refers to John as a light but he's referring to a portable lamp, a different word. And he, he says, you know what? 
Jesus is the true light. John is merely a reflection of the true light. That's what he's saying. But this is all being prepared by John the Baptist, his coming. The whole purpose of John the Baptist, who he was in history, was to fulfill that he was there to tell people that the Lord is here. The Lord is here. He prepared the way of the Lord. We sing a song, prepare ye the way of the Lord. We usually sing it on Palm Sunday. But it's an important thing to remember. This is what God used John the Baptist for. Um, now, you know, I say all that and I give you all that information simply because I want you to understand that this was his purpose. Um, you know, there was an a evangelist by the name of Harry Ironside, old-time preacher of some of his books. And one time he was out here in San Francisco, the story says, and he was preaching a um, sermon out, out, outdoors, preaching, kind of street preaching, and a famous atheist came up to him and confronted him. And um, he handed him a card. And on the card, it said this, Sir, I challenge you to debate with me the question, agnosticism versus Christianity, in the Academy of Science Hall next Sunday afternoon at 4 o'clock. And... Ironside took the card from the man, he read it, and after reading the card, he replied aloud. Because he read the card aloud to the the crowd. He said, "I'm, I'm very much interested in this challenge. Therefore, I will glad to agree to this debate with the following conditions. And then he went on and he said this. In order to prove that Mr. Jones, whoever this guy's name was, has something worth fighting for and worth debating about, if he's going to debate me, here's the condition. He will promise to bring with him to the hall next Sunday for the debate two people. One man who was for years what we commonly call a down-and-outer. A man who for years was under the power of evil habits from which he could not deliver himself. But who on some occasion heard the glorification of agnosticism and atheism and his denunciations of the Bible and Christianity and whose heart and mind as he listened to such an address were so deeply stirred that he went away from the meeting saying, henceforth, I too am an agnostic. And as a result of holding on to that particular philosophy, he found a new power had come into his life. The sins he once loved, he now hates. The righteousness and goodness are now ideals in his life. All because that now he is an agnostic. Ironside likewise asked the atheist to bring a woman who had similarly been delivered from corrupt living by the power of unbelief. And then Ironside turned to his side of the bargain. And he said this, I promise next Sunday I will bring with me at least 100 men and 100 women who for years lived in just such sinful degradation that I have tried to depict but who have been gloriously saved through the believing the gospel which you ridicule. 
I will have these men and women with me on the platform as witnesses to the miraculous saving power of Jesus Christ and as a present-day proof of the truth of the Bible. At this, the atheist simply walked away. (laughs) See, Ironside knew he could easily produce that number of people who've been touched by the power and the life-changing effect that Christ has. See, the light of Christ possesses a life-transforming power that atheism does not. And this is why John came. This is, this is why he came to herald the gospel, to herald the Messiah's coming. I don't know where you're at today, but if you have yet to put your faith, your trust in Christ, you've heard the truth this morning. One day you will be accountable before God for the truth that you heard. God wants to save you. He desires that you put your faith, your trust. You forsake all else and you follow him. That's what he wants for you. And if you make that decision, if you come to Christ this morning, I guarantee you, if it's legitimate, if it's not for all the wrong reasons, if it's not superficial, but you really are grievous over your sins and you truly ask Christ to forgive you, he will. And he will change you. For all of eternity. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that it contains power to change lives. Lord, all of us to some extent have been transformed by the power of the gospel. We've been transformed by Christ. Those of us who put our faith, our trust in him and in him alone for the forgiveness of our sins. And Lord, we do pray and we, we turn to those who have yet to trust in the Son. We don't turn in judgment. We don't turn with condemnation. But we turned, like Jesus, turned to that rich young ruler. And when we look at them, we look at them with love and compassion. And we want them to understand. We want them to hear the message of the gospel, that Christ and Christ alone is our only means of salvation. That's why we preach Christ. We preach Christ alone. It's not our works. It's not our goodness. We have none, the Bible says. And so, Lord, I pray that for anyone who is listening, who has yet to put their faith or trust in Christ, that even today they might be moved to voice a prayer to you. Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Save me from my sin. Help me to see me for who I really am before a holy God. That I am lost. That I am on my way to hell. And I don't want to go there. So I'm asking your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to save me. To forgive my sin. And I am willing to forsake all and follow him and him alone. He will answer that prayer and he will change you. And believers here today never lose sight of the fact that we have a daunting task before us. I know we all have family, we have friends, we have neighbors, we have co-workers that do not know Christ. We have people in our community that have yet to hear the gospel. And Lord, we pray that we would be diligent to our calling that we would be diligent to do what you call us to do and spread the good news of Christ to those who are lost and dying. Father, we thank you and we pray for our time across the way that you would bless the food to our fellowship or to our, our bodies and bless our fellowship as well. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' precious name. Amen.